Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're going to be continuing Arthur Ransom's Rakundra's First Cruise, published in 1923. We're on chapter 20, and this is the 10th part of the reading. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon-only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 20. Hapsal to Heltamar on the island of Dago. September the 11th. Barometer 29.9 inches of mercury, about 1,012 millibars. The wind was still against us this morning, shifting between west and southwest, but a whole day lying at anchor had made us determined to move, if only to get through the difficult bit between Rukaraga and Uderaga reefs, or, if we should fail to do that, at least to get to Anchorage at Estholm, ready to slip through the moment the wind should change. We got our anchor at 7.30 and, slowly tacking, passed by the pierhead, near enough to learn that the fishermen thereon, who had come before the dawn, had caught two little silver fish between them. Then we began with infinite labour to retrace, as far as the black and white buoy, where the channel from Nuke and Worms joins that from the south, the course which we had run so merrily, with the wind free, two days before. The sun was behind the hapsal beacons, and in the glare over the water they were quite invisible, so we just felt our way out, tacking from spar boy to spar boy, the ancient in the bow singing out when he saw the bottom coming up to meet us. The cook was busy with breakfast, two primuses going at once, steam from the porridge coming up the companionway, together with the rich, dark smell of frying bacon. At nine, we reached the first of the main boys, and at ten minutes past ten, we were at the third, round which the channel turns to the south. Here, we brought Rakundra to the wind and hove her to while we hauled the dinghy on board. We then tacked on southwards. It was a wearisome business, but we were all keen to go on, for with the wind backing to the southwest, we had a good hope of being able to point straight through the narrow alleyway of boys between the reefs. We went as close as we dared to the Odraraga Reef and saw its wicked line just below the surface of the water, and at one point a little strip of it, pale red above the wavelets, with seabirds huddled together upon it. We stood away then for Estholm, where are the beginnings and the ruins of a fine harbour, where houses and quays alike, broken by the war, wrecks of half-sunk pontoons lifting desperately into the air, and a forlorn crane. A little cutter was at anchor close by the piers, we had watched her through the glasses, picking her way in with lowered foresail and dropped peak. Away to the east, with the wind behind her, a fine schooner was coming easily through the passage by the Rukaraga beacon. We went about and sailed close hauled to meet her. The beacon is fixed on the northern end of a low strip of rock, just above the level of the water. The Baltic pilot, by the way, like the German chart, gives a most inaccurate picture of it, suggesting a low pyramid supporting a square. It may have been so once upon a time, now it is a tall, open-work obelisk, visible from a great distance and easily recognisable from a few miles away because of the big conical stones which lie near it. Just north of it and running east and west is a narrow lane of four pairs of spar boys. The channel between them is not a stone's throw across, and as there are rocks and stone shallows just outside the line of boys on either side, beating through it is impossible. We met the schooner, envying her speed and favourable wind, and reaching the first pair of boys, found we could just point through the channel. 
We passed the first three pairs of boys with no difficulty and were just rejoicing in having got through a ticklish bit of sailing when I noticed that, though we were heading by compass as before, the wind had fallen a little and the last pair of boys were slipping slowly southwards. I brought Rakundra's head up a fraction. It made no difference. We were already caught in the current which, sweeping up along the far side of the reefs, touched us here whereas it had been imperceptible during the first three quarters of the passage. There was nothing to be done. There was neither time nor room to beat. We were already close upon the last pair of boys, and we were on the wrong side of the northern one. I shouted forward, and the ancient stood by with the anchor as a last resource while we stood on, our hearts in our mouths. The boy was a beam of us and visibly slipping away. It was on our quarter. It was astern. There came a puff of wind, and Rakundra answered it at once, and a moment later the ancient looked happily over his shoulder. Deep water, he called, and we knew that we were out in the moon sound proper, where big steamers find their way and where beacons are lit at night. Now we cared for nothing. I let Rakundra fall a point off the wind, and she brisked up like a horse after a feed of oats. The wind backed a little more, and she pointed west by south, and even west-southwest, that, however, was the best that she could do, and we were not yet far enough from the reefs to put her about on the other tack. So we held on, watching the southern shore of Worms and recognising far before us the low coast of Dago Island and Pialap Church Spire that is a good guide from afar to the pleasant little harbour of Heltemar. Then the wind strengthened and fell away, strengthened and fell away from the southwest. The short, unpleasing sea of the moon sound got up, and the admirable Rakundra began to show us that we had been wrong in boasting that she did not roll. She rolled abominably. The main boom swung from side to side with mighty bangs until I lashed it in the lee backstay tackle. The mizzen boom swung on unheeded. Things were very unpleasant, and as we looked back to the tall Rukaraga beacon, seeming now as if it floated in the water, it was clear enough that we were making very little southing. If that was so in this part of the sound, if the current was so strong here, it would be very much worse in the narrows to the south. And anxious as we were to get along, we had no sort of wish to spend the night in vainly beating to and fro against the wind and current. Just then the two little steamers from Hapsal, the Endler and the Humar, arrivals for the exegious Dago trade pastors bound cheerfully for Heltemar. I had been in Heltemar before and knew it for a picturesque place, one of the smallest good harbours in the world. There was that church on the horizon, a fine mark to steer by, and after all, we reasoned if the wind should change, we should be able to consider the visit to Heltemar merely as a long attack. We could lose nothing by going there, so we made up our minds to hold on until either the wind should change or we should come to Heltemar. The wind did not change, so we came to Heltemar just before sunset. At 6.15, we warped in round Endless Stern, nearly carrying away her flagstaff as we did so, owing to the energy with which we were helped by the men of Heltemar, and found ourselves in very snug quarters for the night. There was room in Heltemar Harbour for the tiny humour, one open fishing boat, a dinghy, Rakundra, the Endler, and a schooner of small size. But Endler was tied up outside the harbour proper, across the end of the pierhead, and the schooner was at anchor, the fishing boat, Rakundra, and Humor filled all available key berths. A young man in uniform, who was, I think, a Coast Guard soldier and harbour master, came up aboard and enthusiastically pencilled the date of Rakundra's arrival on her papers. Then, as it looked like rain, we put the covers on the sails 
And while the cook and the ancient began to make supper, I set out with a milk can, an egg basket, and a string bag to do some provisioning. A hundred yards or so from the harbour is a so-called inn that was once a Russian posting station where you could hire horses at so many kopecks per mile per horse to take you across the island. It is still called an inn and people do sleep on sacks of straw there if they are on their way to Hapsal and the sound is too rough for the little steamer. Its landlord, who has or had some official connection with the harbour, talks only Estonian, nor does his wife talk any other language. My dealings with them were not easy. I tried English, I tried Russian. These failing, I took a long breath and asked them for milk in Estonian. Pima, I said, and waved my milk can. Eh, hola Pima, they replied in chorus. All right, if they had no milk, I would try for eggs. Muna, I said, and the good woman scuttled off as if she were herself a hen and came back with a lot of very little eggs. Kiu paleo maxap, said I. Kumi munat, ten eggs, said the woman, counting on her fingers. Nelly kument mark, a forty marks. I had only a note for a hundred, and they gave no change or very little, so they gave me ten marks back and a number of new white loaves. That was all they could do, but that was not enough. They pointed up the road towards the forest, and I went to the next house, which turned out to be a schoolhouse. I found a young woman in a pink cotton dress sitting on the back of a desk. It was the schoolmistress, and this an idle hour. I tried English, and she turned the colour of a ripe apple. Yes, I know English, she said, and promptly, in her embarrassment, forgot all she knew. I dare say she reads Shakespeare. I think it highly likely that she teaches English. She understood perfectly when I explained that I wanted milk, but when she tried to answer, it was as if someone held her tongue by the roots and muffled her brain. By now, I am sure she has thought out the speech she should have made. At the time, she was struck dumb, and coming to the doorstep, she could only point up the road into the forest, turn redder and redder, so that her pink cotton dress looked almost white, and stammer, house, 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 and then with a flash of memory, yellow house. So I thanked her, and she fled away back into her schoolroom while I went on towards the trees, looking for a yellow house. I found the yellow house, but the woman therein, who talked Estonian to me, exhausted herself in explaining that they only had one cow and were ten in family. She directed me to another house, where she said they were few in family but had two cows. I found that house, but the woman in it said that I could have milk only when the cows should come home and that they were not expected home before eight o'clock. However, she directed me to another house. Here I found a little elderly woman with a face wrinkled all over, the most charming wrinkles, so that when she smiled every line in her face took part in the smile, and she, while explaining that she had no milk and would not let me go, but held me firmly by my jersey and called for her husband to come out and look. To me, she said, we have no milk, but to him, here's an Englishman, and held me firmly till he came. A long, thin, smiling fellow who somehow reminded me of John Macefield. I accordingly felt friendly towards him, and perhaps I reminded him of someone, for he seemed to feel friendship for me, and took me by the arm and led me to a stake hedge, where he pulled out a stake to let me through and said, Over there is a house with a little white barn, and there lives a Russian man, and he has good cows and will certainly give you milk. So I wandered on into the forest and came to a house with a little pigsty beside it with a glass window, the only pigsty with a glass window that I can remember to have seen. And beyond that, sure enough, was a house, a log cabin, 
with a tiny barn, and the barn was whitewashed. And here I spoke to the woman of that house in Russian, but she did not understand me and called to her husband, who came from the potato bed wearing his shirt outside his trousers in the Russian fashion. With him, of course, I had a good talk and great difficulty in coming to business. He told me he had come here as a soldier in the Russian service 30 years ago and had married a wife and lived here ever since. Yet if I were to ask some of them from our village, by Poltava, to help me till this ground, they would laugh at me, for they would say that there was nothing to be got out of it. And indeed, in Poltava is the black earth, and here is nothing but stone. But now I am 50 years old, and a little more, and I am not too well, and I do not suppose I shall see Russia again. Then he told me that he had sold all his milk for the Endler, and I let that pass, and he told me of how he had been a policeman in Hapsol, a summer policeman, he explained, for in winter it seems there are no visitors and policemen are not necessary. He also told me how a man wearing a Cossack burka or long cloak and talking very good Russian had told him that he had been playing cards with the emperor. It was clear enough that he was a great man. Then I put in another word about the milk and he said something to his wife about milk for the endler and she laughed and I guessed that the people on the endler were going to get less perfect milk than they had hoped for she took my milk can and went off, while he told me there had been great rains, so that the water stood between the potato rows, and the potatoes had rotted, and went on to ask if all was well with England. And then he noticed the eggs that I had bought at the inn. Those are very little eggs, said he, and asked me what I had had to pay for them. I asked him if he had any, as we needed more for our ship, and he sent a little girl who brought ten beauties, twice the size of those already in my basket. And then the woman came back with my milk can, full of new milk, warm from the cow, and he asked how he should know my little ship, so that his wife could bring me more milk in the morning, if we had not sailed. Then, when I paid for the eggs and the milk, he asked me if there was nothing else I wanted that he could give me, and I could think of nothing, but he gave me the best of his turnips and a lot of fresh beans, and with that he walked with me to an opening in the trees, whence we could see the harbour and Rakundra's two masts. If those masts are there in the morning, said he, my wife shall bring you some more milk. And so we parted, thanking each other like old friends, and I hurried back by a quick way he showed me across the country, and came to the ship, and found that those hungry ones had finished supper, and that my supper was cold. But I ate it with great pleasure, full of the warmth of this abundance of human intercourse. Chapter 21 Toledo of Leith the last time I was at Haltamar was a year before we sailed in there, in Rakundra, when I came there on foot, after walking from the other side of the island, where I had landed from a small, timber-carrying schooner in which I had sailed from the mainland. I came to Haltamar by the road from Kurdler, and was hurrying back to rejoin the Kittiwake at Baltic Port. It so happened that I came there on a day when there were no means of getting across the Sound to Hapsal, and I was disconsolately trying to arrange with the innkeeper to let me sleep the night on a bench when two sailors came in buying provisions. I tried them in my own language. One of them knew a few words and told me that the captain of his ship spoke English and that I had better come with them. I asked him where his ship was and he pointed far out to sea where, sure enough, a large steamship was lying. I helped the men to carry a sack of potatoes, a tin of kerosene, milk, butter, bread and a lively little pig down to the tiny harbour. They had a small open boat with a jib and a spritzel tied under the quay. We stowed everything into it, the pig squealing all the time with the regularity of a mechanical siren. 
We could not talk, but divided the labour in silent agreement. One man took the tiller, the other dealt with the sails, and I nursed the little pig. Within half an hour of my trudging into Heltemar, I was at sea, slipping rapidly over the four or five miles that separated Heltemar from the Erikstone. As we came nearer, I was surprised at the way the ship was lying, broadside on to the wind and perfectly steady, across breaking waves. She was aground. Then, as we came nearer yet, I saw that her shrouds were dangling round the masts and that she had been stripped bare. She was not, as I had supposed, a passing ship sending ashore for provisions. She was a wreck. I asked how long she had been there. Two years or more. We are waiting for high water, said the man. There was a rising wind, and we approached the wreck at great speed, and shot round under her stern, luffed, lowered the sails, and caught hold of a rope ladder. As we came round under her stern, I looked up for the name and read, Toledo, Leith. Here, in this most unexpected of places, was a British ship. I ran up the ladder, and climbed over the bulwarks and down on the rusty shell of what once upon a time had steamed in all the pride of new paint and shining brasswork out of the Firth of Forth. A small boy was hanging some fishing nets to dry. He pointed aft when I asked for the captain, and, bending to avoid the nets and fishing lines that were hanging under the upper deck, I groped my way towards the stern. Captain Conger, well over six feet high, came out of a sort of hutch he had rigged up between the decks. He greeted me in English, invited me into his cabin, told me I must stay the night with him, and promised to put me over to the mainland in the morning. I have seen many cabins, but none quite like that hutch in which the captain of the Toledo had his comfortable being. It was built of balks of wood, set up on end between the iron decks. It was six feet six inches high, long and broad. That size, Captain Conger explained, he had found by experiment to be the most convenient. Sitting on his bunk, he could put wood on the stove in the corner, light his reading lamp, take a book from the opposite shelf, eggs or bacon from his store cupboard, reach down his saucepan or frying pan from the books on the walls, or get the boatswain's whistle, with piercing blasts of which he summoned the members of his crew. From any place in it he could reach every other place, and that, he said, was the most labour-saving kind of house. He told me the story of the ship. She had been captured by the Germans in the summer of 1918. She had been aground on the shallows close by Haltemar, but one wild night, while the Germans had all been drinking ashore, a strong westerly wind had so raised the waters in the gulf that Toledo floated off, and when the Germans came to look for her in the morning, she had floated far out to sea, and by miraculous chance had settled herself on this small shoal by the Eric Rock. The water had fallen again, and the Germans had lost the war, and left these parts before it had ever again risen high enough to let them get her off. Then the salvage company had taken her over, and Captain Conger had come to live on board. Once only in the previous winter, she had floated for a few minutes, but the icebergs round her were so thick that with the instruments at his command he could not shift her, and the sinking water had left her again in her place. Today the water was rising again. Another four inches and we shall have her moving, said Captain Conger, and showed me the cables he had laid out astern, the little boiler and donkey engine he had brought from Raval, and his other arrangements for pulling her into deep water the moment she should float. Actually, as we stood there, we could feel that she was on the point of floating. He had a marked pole over the side, and from time to time looked at it to see if the water was still rising. Yet she's not worth much these days, he said. The Germans stripped her of some things, and then when they went, the local pirates did the rest. 
They took everything, even pulling the engines to pieces to get the nuts. Nuts make good sinkers for fishing nets. The portholes have all gone. All the new schooners built on worms have fine brass portholes made in Edinburgh. And here for two years Captain Conger had been living and enjoying himself most mightily. He shot seals which came and played by the rock. He painted the rock red. He shot the duck. He fished. All passing boats took supplies of fresh fish from the Toledo. He made his own nets, and for his own amusement he kept his log, accurately as if at sea, but each day in a different language, Estonian, German, Swedish, English, Russian, ringing the changes on these five. He was delighted to talk English and told me he had a friend in England, a very pretty young woman, living near Hull. He had taught her Russian, and she had taught him English. A very pretty young woman, said he. I asked him when he had last seen her, and he told me 25 years ago. I hardly like to suggest that the young woman might now be older, for he seemed so certain that, for her at least, time had stood still. And so merry, he added, and so active, runs like a hare and dances, you should see her dance. Time for Captain Conger did not exist, except that he never had quite enough of it for all he wished to do. When I offered to send him newspapers, thinking foolishly that he might enjoy them, living alone out there on the wreck with Heltemar as his metropolis, and that only approachable in fine weather in his little boat, he thanked me, but said he would never have the time to read them. His life was so busy, what with birds, seals, fish, and the making of cartridges and nets and fishing lines, drying, salting, and skinning. He was enjoying himself enormously, and, as we talked, I perceived that he always had enjoyed himself enormously, looking neither before nor after, but wholeheartedly engaged in whatsoever he was doing. And he had done strange things, hunting bears in the Arctic, hunted himself by the women of the Samoyeds, maddened by the drinks of civilization. He had his whole life at his fingers' ends. It was all contemporaneous for him, and talking of this or that, as he taught me how to make a net, he would refer to events of thirty years ago, as if they had happened that same afternoon. Next day, it blew so hard that it was almost impossible to stand on deck except in the shelter of the bulwarks, so I spent another night with Captain Conger, netting and hearing tales of the Estonian coast, of Ungern Sternberg and his wreckers, of the people of the Tutters Islands, who will not let the salvage company approach a wreck before the men of Tutters had finished with it. The sea was black with their little boats, and as I came near with a tug, they shouted at me to keep off, and waved every man a gun to show that they were armed. But that was a long time ago, said I. It was last year or the year before. These people do not change so fast. I've had to show that we have guns to keep them off the Toledo. The Dago folk are quiet enough, but the women of Worms, and the men of Worms, are sucking babes beside the pirates of Tutters. On the second morning, the sea was going down, and the wind was less, and the captain and one of his men lowered away the little skiff that he had for fishing. There was just room for the three of us in her. We sailed due east to the island of Worms, thinking that I should there catch the postman's cutter for Hapsal. We came upon the patches of rocks awash and out of the water. Then the men lowered the sprit, reducing the sail by one half as we threaded our way among them. Now and again we were skimming over less than a foot of water, once we stepped out and carried the boat over a shallower place, then out in deep water again, and the little boat, which was Captain Congo's special pride, fairly slipped across the waves. We landed on the eastern corner of Worms by Svilby, but the postcutter had gone, and the captain looked at his watch. It was just possible that we might catch the train at Hapsal. We were off again, 
But as Hapsol came in sight, we saw the train steaming in the station. It is nearly two miles from the pier to the station. The thing could not be done. How many minutes have we? asked the captain. I told him. He said nothing but turned aside from the fairway leading to the pier and steered straight across the rocky shoals at the station. We touched once, then again, and sat every moment expecting to ground for good, but luck was with us, as it must always be with such as Captain Conger, and with two minutes to spare, he ran the boat ashore and I jumped for the train. That autumn, the water gave him his chance and he took it, pulled Toledo off, and with the help of a tug from Raval, took her to Helsingfors. I felt sorry for him when I heard it. As a salved ship in these days, I do not suppose the Toledo was worth much, nor would his share of that be large. But as a fishing and shooting box, for a man like him, who knew how to use every moment of his time in such pursuits, she was without a better in the world. Well, that's the end of today's reading, and I hope you enjoyed it. It brings me so much pleasure to be able to read these books and to bring them back out into the light from dusty library shelves and uh, share with you the fantastic uh, stories which we're, we're seeing unfold here. This book, uh, Rakundra's First Cruise, is 100 years old this year, and yet I think all of us are already able to see that with a great writer like Arthur Ransom, um, you've got some really special way of connecting through to people who love doing the same things we love to do out on a boat enjoying themselves so if you like this kind of content if you want to hear more of it please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner five dollars a month helps to support this podcast which goes out 20 times a month but starting now in january of 2023 there's a whole extra series of books being read over on patreon um, those are available for patrons of every level so a whole extra series of books there in the same line and things i'm sure you'll find very enjoyable. So that's patreon.com forward slash the Marinette, support the podcast and get your hands on those extra sailing books. Great. Well, thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.